Hello and welcome back to The Ties That Find. I'm your host, Rachel, and this is a true crime podcast that tells the stories of long investigated mysteries that are solved using forensic genealogy. As a disclaimer, I am in no way affiliated with or sponsored by GenMatch, Parabon Nanolabs, or the DNA Dill Project. Today, we are concluding the case of Christine Jessup, an eight-year-old little girl that was abducted and murdered in a small town outside of Toronto in Canada. Join me for part two, and we find out who did it. Hello and welcome back. I'm so excited to finish this case. This is when we start getting really pissed off at the government. (laughs) We're going to find out what happens at the second trial and there's going to be an inquiry that's made and we're going to find out what exactly was real and as opposed to what was presented to the jury. Just going to do a little brief overview of the case so far before we get into the new information. Christine Jessup was eight years old on October 3rd, 1984, she had been abducted from her home while um, she was home alone. About three months later, she was discovered about 30 miles from home. She had been stabbed to death and sexually assaulted and left in the woods. Shortly after that, the local police department zeroes in on her family's next door neighbor, a man named Guy Mirren, and they take him to trial. They have some fiber evidence, some hair evidence that they think could be his, but this is the 80s, and ultimately the prosecution, the Crown, didn't really listen when the lab tech said it could be his, the, the the Crown heard it is his. So they take him to trial, and they have some circumstantial evidence that they present as well, and he's acquitted. But according to Canadian law, if the Crown presents a strong enough argument to the, to the court, to the appellate court, that the trial didn't go according to the law and the, pro- the correct process. It's possible that, you know, we can actually have a second trial, essentially a mistrial after a trial has ended. So in Guy Marin's case, the Crown was able to persuade the appellate court to allow for a second trial. And we're going to go into the second trial now. Now, after this trial, there was an, um, an inquiry that was conducted by the Supreme Court of Ontario, which is, like we said, like a huge state up in Canada. And they, they really needed to take a close look at, at, as to what happened in this police investigation. And what they found is there's a lot of stuff that happened in the second trial that was totally, completely wrong, to either lies or misconstrued understandings of testimony. And so I'm going to I'm going to present to you what happened at the trial and then after that I'm going to tell you what was actually found to be true in the report. But first, Christine's brother Kenneth has a dream. Sometime in the summer of 1986, Ken has a dream that Christine is not fully buried and that some of her remains are actually still out there in the woods. He tells his parents this, and remember he's like 14 years old. He tells his parents, either his parents are intrigued or he convinces his parents or whatever. But they get in the car and they travel over to the body site. They actually are, you know, they're walking around. They're looking through, you know, at all the the brush. And Ken looks down and he actually sees what he thinks to be our bones. They pick them up. They put them in, you know, like a cup and they, they bring them over to the police station. This actually prompts the police, the police department to exhume Christine's body. But it takes four years to actually do it. So in 1991, I th- believe it's the, the Toronto police at this point, they exhume Christine's body and they do another autopsy. 
Now they find even more evidence of Christine's murder. They find that she had been beaten um, about the face and the head, and she had actually been stabbed directly through her abdomen, as well as almost being decapitated. So I'm not sure about the facial, you know, the face, the, the head beating, but to now discover that the that the child had almost been decapitated when it hadn't been known at that time, it wasn't at the first trial. I'm just starting to lose faith in in every in every jurisdiction of the police department at this point. Now, before the second trial in 1992, Christine's parents, Robert and Janet, they do split up. Unfortunately, they weren't able to stay together. Um, sometimes this does happen after when tragedy strikes family. Uh, so we have the new trial is going to be in 1992 and the crown during that time resets. They go back to the, you know, they go back to the table and they look for new witnesses, more witnesses, re-interview people. They check out their concrete, you know, their direct evidence, um, see if there's anything new that they can come up with that was overlooked in the past. And at the same time, Guy and his attorneys are finding out evidence that the Crown had that actually would prove that he was innocent. And so Guy and his attorneys are appealing to the court to say, we shouldn't even have another trial because they're not disclosing exculpatory evidence for us, for our side. And that's not fair. One such example is our friend, the crime scene investigator, Michael Michalowski. At this point, he is a sergeant. And it is discovered by the prosecutor, by the prosecution, the crown during, you know, in their research and interviewing all the police officers that were involved in the case. It was discovered that he had created a second notebook to be used for the first trial that was um, either new or in addition to or a rewrite of his original notebook from the day that Christine's body was found. So there's a lot of things in the new notebook that weren't in the original notebook. And the big question, of course, is, is this just him re- adding more things because he remembered them over time or he just wants it to be pretty and he wa- wants to have a nice, clean copy of his notebook? No, he is considered to be a perjurer and um, they do arrest him and they do charge him, but then he's got some bad health. And so they let him out and they say, uh, I know you got some bad health. So just uh, sit tight and we'll get to you another day. Um, he's never actually tr- retr- he's never actually tried for the perjury um, c- the perjury charges in Guy Mirren's Guy Mirren's first trial, but lo and behold, he's actually allowed to testify in the second trial. Um, it's just amazing to me. Not only is he testifying again in the second trial, but he also gets special treatment. He is sitting in a special like witness, you know, a witness, special witness chair. He's facing a different way for whatever reason. I think it might have something to do with keeping his true identity away from the jurors or something. Um, He gets a lot of smiles and handshakes from the crown and from the judge. So, you know, supposedly it's out of of sight and earshot of the jurors, but at the same time, he's definitely got some preferential treatment in there. So let's run down the list of the new information that we have in the second trial for Guy that we didn't have in the first. In this new trial, we have a new police officer who works with the canine dog, and he comes on the stand and he testifies. He was part of the team that searched Guy's car that was believed to have taken Christine out of town. And he says that his dog had actually gotten like a hit on her car, but he just never, it never came forward in the, in the first trial, maybe because they didn't think that they needed it. A different officer also testifies. He says that he was the officer that showed up the night 
that night to the Jessup's house when Janet first called the police. And he says that he then at that at that time when he left Janet's house, he went over to the Morin house and he spoke with Guy's mom. He said that he saw Guy, and, you know, when he was, as he was speaking with mom, he glanced um, through the house and he saw Guy in another room and he was just sitting there with his, you know, just staring straight ahead. Now the implication is that either he didn't care or he was just, it was just some kind of guilty look the officer is now saying. Officers trying to insinuate that Guy's reaction to the officer being there asking about a missing little girl, Guy's reaction is showing that um, either he doesn't care about the fact that there's a little girl missing or he just doesn't want to be called out to be interviewed for it. He just wants to keep a, a low profile in the other room. Now, supposedly this officer didn't come forward and speak about it in the first trial because that was the only thing that he really did involved in Christine Jessup's case. And so he wasn't a big player as far as the investigation goes. And so he just, he didn't think much to say anything to his higher ups. And so therefore he never ended up on the stand. We also have some friends of Guy Morin's and some other similar witnesses in the neighborhood that testify. And they're essentially, you know, like after the fact type witnesses, they would say, well, he didn't seem all that concerned. I would talk to him about the little, the missing little girl. And he would say, oh, that's too bad. But it didn't really seem to me like he really cared. Then we also have this whole, there's, there's this whole question about uh, cigarette butts that are found at the scene. Part of the evidence that was collected at the scene of, of the body site were a cigarette butt or or two or maybe even like a, a package, you know, an empty an empty cigarette package. So the crown wants to make the argument that these these found cigarette butts belong to the killer, but then it comes out that Guy doesn't smoke. It also comes out that some of the police officers were smokers and they had been putting their butts out on this you know, at this body site, which is, we thought it was bad that they didn't lay the tarp out. We thought it was bad. We didn't even know how we're, how, how much of a, uh, you know, a, a land area was being searched when, when Christine was found. But now we're finding out that they're, they're tossing cigarette butts throughout the, throughout the whole area too. So there's this whole question about whether or not these cigarette butts have anything to do with her murder, or if it was just really sloppy police work, I would say really sloppy police work. And that's just me. And of course, they're also bringing in the issue with the time. The Cram made an argument that he had the time to do it after he got home from work. And then also the hair and fiber evidence that really wasn't very good, strong evidence, but it was evidence and it was enough to convince the jury altogether that he was guilty. And on July 30th, 1992, E. Paul Morin was found guilty of first degree murder of Christine Jessup, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Now, the town of Queensville and surrounding areas and into Toronto, all of Ontario, a lot of people are very happy and ecstatic that Guy has been found guilty because they need someone to blame for Christine's abduction and murder. Um, however, there is a committee that is created on his behalf. It's called Justice for Guy Paul Morin. And this will eventually, over time, turn into the Innocence Canada entity. It's much like the Innocence Project that we have here in the States. They were able to get him granted bail on February 9th of 1993, just eight, nine months later. They appeal his conviction. Additionally, it's been now 10 years since Christine's been murdered and science has come a long way. And so is DNA testing and evidence and such. And before the appeal is completely finalized and, and presented to the appeals court, they are able to actually get more 
testing done on this blood and semen that was found at, her, at the crime scene, and they're able to rule Guy out as a suspect because his DNA does not match the semen that is found. And on January 23rd, 1995, the Court of Appeals officially acquits Guy Paul Morin for the abduction and the murder of Christine Jessup, which is wonderful for him. On the books, he is innocent. However, he's always being looked at suspiciously, and he, and he just can't get out from under it. Ontario says, hey, this is not right because we're taking a closer look at this case. We're taking a closer look at the investigation of her disappearance and then later of the murder and how it was handled by the police departments. We're also taking a look into the Crown and how the Crown acted to put together this case against Guy. And we're going to take a thorough look and, and we're going to come up with a report and see, see what we did wrong here. The official findings of this of this investigation or this inquiry is going to be called the Kaufman Report, and I believe Kaufman was um, a retired judge from the Supreme Court of Ontario. And now we're going to go over the things that Kaufman found were very either shady or outright lies or indiscrepancies, inconsistencies with what the Crown presented and what was the real truth. Now, the first place they start is the Center for Forensic Sciences. That's the lab that conducted the testing on the DNA found at the scene, and then also the fibers that were found um, on and around Christine's body. And Stephanie Nisnik and Norman Erickson testify at the inquiry that, yes, they knew that the prosecution was interpreting those, those results to be complete matches, even though they themselves knew that they weren't. They didn't want to essentially go back on their testimony from the first trial, so they just kind of went with it. The prosecution actually did test runs with laundry, and they wanted to see if the fibers could be transferred from one laundry load to another, even though the, the clothes weren't necessarily the same from the same family, which is actually what happened in, in this case. The Morins and the Jessops actually used the same laundry mat, so it's it's theorized now at this point that any fibers from Christine's clothes that ended up in the mirror and laundry actually could have happened this way and not because Guy had kidnapped her and, and you know, raped her and, and killed her. Of course, the prosecution didn't like the test results because it turns out that that actually could, um, you know, exclude him. It's a, it's a reasonable explanation as to why her fibers might have been in, in or on his clothes or, you know, in the car, if he had been the person that did the laundry that week, but the prosecution doesn't like this result of this test run. And so they don't, they don't bring it to trial because that would hurt their case. And then they don't also don't give it to the defense. Regarding the testimony of the two inmates, the, uh, the Kaufman inquiry ultimately decides that they are just not credible witnesses and they shouldn't have been put on the stand to begin with. They're essentially testifying to get themselves into better situations, not because what they were saying was true. When they interviewed people at the inquiry about the the canine dog, no one actually remembered giving the sweater to this officer for the purpose of getting the dog to recognize Christine's scent. And then also later on when they were investigating his car, no one remembers actually even seeing the dog there that day. So that essentially is a complete lie. Totally made up for the second trial. We also have the guilty looking stare. And now I'm starting to get really pissed. <laughs> We also have the guilty-looking stare that the um, that the original reporting officer said he witnessed when he was interviewing Guy's mom, and then he said Guy, Guy looked funny in the background. The commissioner says, well, it wasn't even in your notes from that day. How can you remember something seven years later? I don't even think this event took place. 
then we had the witnesses and the friends who came up. Essentially, they were just like, oh, he looked he looked funny. He, he didn't seem sad enough about this little girl that was missing. Turns out, of course, like we know now, uh, that's more prejudicial than it is probative. All the testimony about how a person interprets a personality, a person's behavior or personality, that's not an omission of guilt. So in the, in the end, the report came up with 119 recommendations for policy changes across multiple levels in law enforcement. We're talking investigating officers and, and how, how to handle missing persons um, inquiries right, in the, right from the beginning, also how to handle crime scene investigations, also how the lab techs have to, you know, essentially keep the labs clean and be upfront. They're not allowed to use the term match anymore. Just like nowadays, when you hear testimony from lab techs, they say that we can't exclude the person. We don't say that they can't match, that they, that they definitely match, because it's just a bad interpretation for the jury to hear. So a few of the highlights from the Coffin Report are going to sound like, duh, hello. Uh, number one, don't um, take your jailhouse informant's word for, for what it is. You have to vet your jailhouse informants. Remember, they're in jail for a reason. Um, they might be doing something, saying things just to get, get their own situation in a better place. Two, don't get tunnel vision. Don't just say, go from the get-go, like, oh, that guy is, you know, he's like, like the Jessup said, he, he's kind of a weird guy. Don't just get tunnel vision and say, oh, that must be it. We're going to close in. We're going to make sure that everything that we find relates, brings us directly back to the suspect. You have to take it, the evidence for what it is, and then go with that. Number three, you have to keep actual notes. Turns out in the, in the inquiry, they found that a lot of officers didn't actually take a lot of notes, even if they were interviewing a one person for like hours, for a few hours at a time, then they would leave the, the meeting with just a few sentences of notes that were taken down. Not good enough. You need to keep specific notes and you need to make sure that it's it's understandable. Make sure your notes are good. Number four, just because someone seems fishy doesn't mean that you can use it as evidence. That's not good enough. Duh. <laughs> uh, number five don't get emotionally attached to the family um, I guess this kind of goes along with the idea that you need to keep yourself a dis you need to keep distance because otherwise you know it could go it could lead you down the, the tunnel vision road you could just be like well I want to get justice for this family I'm a police officer I'm going to do whatever I can to put someone away you got to keep emotionally emotionally unattached uh, six, tighten up your forensics labs. There's, we, we can't use, like we said, we can't use the word match anymore. We can say exclude, cannot be excluded or can be excluded. We need to make sure to keep the lab clean and sanitized. You can't be intermixing evidence from one, from one desk to another. And, you know, make sure that you yourself don't have any contaminating things on you. There was a mention that, that Stephanie's actual sweater fibers from whatever she was wearing during, you know, while, while she was there working actually would be left behind and somehow contaminated some of the evidence. It wasn't just in the Jessup case. It was also in other cases. And so they actually had to go back and start questioning the convictions that they had in other, in other cases. So those are just a few of the highlights. Now, whatever happened with Guy? Well, Guy ended up getting about a, a, a quarter, a one and a quarter million dollars in compensation from the Ontario government and a public apology. He did eventually get married and he had, and he had kids and he also produced a CD of his own clarinet music. So good for him. In an interview after, after he gets released, he does say, quote, the justice system failed me, but science saved me, unquote. So not only does the Coffin Report come up with a lot of inconsistencies or, or just totally completely fabricated lies about what happened to Christine, 
We also have interviews with the, that the Fifth Estate was able to conduct, and they have uh, an interview with a man who actually was driving down the road where Christine was found by that field, and he remembers passing a car on the side of the road that night. As he passed, he said a large man came out of the woods. He slammed down the lid of the trunk, and he just stared at the witness as he drove by. He said the man was very nervous, and he was very sweaty-looking. And the witness, he was freaked out, so he just kept on driving. And when Christine was found, he actually called the police and he reported what he had seen in that area that night. But the investigators, they were just like, meh. They weren't interested in his story and they never followed up with him. Now, depending on what time this was, this sounds like it could have definitely have been after Guy had already been home. So this actually would have excluded Guy from being involved in Christine's abduction. Another one that totally skews me out is an elderly woman. She actually lives in the area. And she said she reported that she did hear screams from, from the woods that night. So we're talking like, I think it was like 11, 1130 at night. She was hearing someone screaming, help, help, don't. And then it, it carried on for like a half an hour or so. And then at some point, she said she did feel like it was a child that was screaming. Later on, she talked to a neighbor and the neighbor had heard it too. They did call the police, but the police didn't call back. Again, this would have ruled out Guy being involved because Guy, by, definitely by the time midnight rolled around, he was definitely home. It, there's no question as to whether or not he had left the house after he had gotten home that day with, with the groceries and supposedly abducting Christine. So now we're at the point where we need to get into our subject investigation. Years and years and years go by, and we're now we're in 2019, and we have Detective Sergeant Steve Smith on the case. And when he takes over the case, he says he's looking at like 400 bankers' boxes full of information. There's testing results from the DNA of over 300 men, and it's over 36 years, and he doesn't know what to do, so he has to start from the beginning. He also says to himself, well, we got the new DNA kind of stuff going on with the gen genetic genealogy, and he's going to go to take like a law enforcement class called Human Remains and Historical Homicide. And in that class, they actually do highlight the Golden State Killer, and he's and he gets some information about the genetic genealogy angle when it comes to solving, solving cold cases. Also around this time, uh, a lab in the, U in the United States in Texas called Othram Inc. It's kind of like Parabon. They call Sergeant Smith and they offer to help with Christine's case. And in December of 2019, he does send Christine's underwear to the lab and they're able to get a good DNA profile out of it. They're also able to get a family tree completed to, to, to a certain extent. They're able to hit on at least one family member on each side of the suspect's family. And so Detective Smith takes this report and these family names and he brings it back to his precinct and he calls on three police genealogists in the department and they're able to narrow 33,000 family members down to 5,000, which is great, but we still have 5,000 people <laughs> we have to get through. Now there's, there is an explanation of the family tree mapping that is on, um, that's on the web. I will post it in the show notes. You can find it on the website. It's a pretty big overview, but it is pretty interesting when you, you know, just to be able to, to watch a genealogist go through it. So the people who actually conducted the family tree investigation, they were Anthony and Lee Redgrave. They are the head and the, the owners of Redgrave Research Forensic Sciences, and they are out of Athol or Athol, Massachusetts. They also um, employed or 
I'm not sure if they're employed, but they have interns that they do bring in to help them work some of these cases. And they've done a lot of great work over the last few years. They've been able to solve two dozen Doe, John and Jane Doe cases. And they've also done some other, you know, cold case murder, murder cases. They also are the co-founders and administrators of the Trans Doe Task Force. That's obviously um, a task force that, that focuses on identifying um, transgender uh, bodies that are found. Now, Anthony finds Sensi Morgan hits on all four sides now at this point. He finds Sensi Morgan hits on the suspect's dad's dad's side, the dad's mom's side, the mom's dad's side, and the mom's mom's side, which is great because now you're really able to start zeroing in on one particular person instead of having to worry about like one tree branch and then going through all those cousin, cousin families. So the Redgraves present Detective Smith with two sets of immediate families and Detective Smith reviews both of them and the DNA clears out the first family and so he zeroes in on the other family. This other family has one man known to the Jessops at the time and he actually did live in the area and they even think that they might he might have had access to their home. And this guy's name was in the case file when he goes back and he looks through all the evidence. But the problem is, is this man is actually dead. So Smith says, well, how am I going to get his DNA so we can finally put this to rest? We need to be sure. So we could possibly exhume his body. It's expensive, first of all. Secondly, if it's not right, and for somehow or another, we, we made a mistake along the line, then we're bringing up, you know, somebody's body that is completely innocent. So we don't want to do that. Let's just find, let's see if there's any other places where his blood could have, could be stored. So we checked the Center for Forensic Sciences just to see if there was anything that they had, and it turns out that um, there was an autopsy done when he died, and they did save a profile. Sweet. So, on October 15th of 2020, what's that, five months ago, the Toronto police announced the killer of Christine Jessup in 1984 to be Calvin Dana Hoover. Who is this piece of shit that got away with it for 36 years and is dead by the time he's discovered? So Calvin was married with children, and he lived about half an hour away from the Jessup family. His wife and he both worked with Bob, dad, at the time, back in the day. Mostly Heather, his wife, worked with, with Bob, but Calvin also did some jobs for him as well. Turns out he attended her wake, her funeral, and he helped search for her when she went missing. Fucking piece of shit. He had two sons with Heather, and she had two sons from a previous relationship, and after he was exonerated, we're told that Hoover started withdrawing from his family. He would just leave town for a few days to be by himself. He just got to be ornery. He was, he was cranky. He was nasty. He would go gambling. He would start drinking more. He ended up getting into cocaine and drugs. Um, he did have a conviction. It was a DUI in 1996. But other than that, he wasn't on the, on the police radar. So one thing's for sure is he was not entered into, the, into any kind of CODIS or, or Canadian equivalent of the CODIS system. He wasn't arrested for any kind of sexual assaults, any kind of other violent offenses. And so his DNA ended, never ended up into the government's databases. In 1997, he ended up getting divorced from Heather. Um, she did get the kids. But from what we know, he actually, when he killed himself, he was living with one of his sons. So he was still in contact with his kids. He did remarry in 2003. Um, but the, but the new wife, she ended up passing. She had a, she had a long term, a chronic illness. It might have been cancer. I'm not sure, but she passed in 2009. And by 2010, he starts telling family that he's not really sure if he wants to be around anymore. 
So he's got suicidal thoughts and he actually intentionally wrecks his car, but he survives. And about five years later in 2015, he kills himself. He ran his car in his closed garage and passed from the fumes. Like I said, he was living with his son and his son found him. Okay, so now the police, um, Sergeant Smith is interviewing family. They're interviewing the Jessups, they're interviewing um, Heather and the rest of the Hoover family. We don't get a lot of information from the Hoover family, from his direct um, immediate family, but we do get some information from his from his ex-wife, Heather. We'll go with, we'll start with dad, Robert or Bob. He says that he thinks that he does remember kind of that Hoover had worked with him back in the day. Right away, he doesn't recognize the name, but then he starts thinking it over and he says, I think actually that he did run some cable for my company at one point on a job that I had for the police department. Oh my God. So this guy is doing work at the police, at the police department. And he had just, or was about to kidnap and rape and murder one of his, like his, his boss's daughter. It's just insane. This guy, this guy's a lunatic. He also said, dad says that the Hoover, Calvin and Heather and their kids had been to their house in the past for barbecues, just to hang out. And dad says, if I could, I would line him up and I would blow his brains out. Absolutely, Dad. I would say the same thing. They get more information about from Heather about Calvin and his whereabouts and his, you know, his personality at the time back then. And she said, "Well, what we had done was I was friends. I, like I said, I worked with Bob at the time. I also would baby Chris, babysit Christine and her brother Kenneth a few times. We were so close that Christine gave me a, a one of her school pictures. And Heather says that she kept it on a frame inside her house." And then she also would visit Christine's grave. And the whole time, Calvin is there. Let that sink in. So Calvin is living his life with his wife. His wife doesn't know what he's done. And his victim's school picture is in the hall. And he's going with, with his wife to the grave to, quote, mourn the death of this little girl when he's the person who put her there. I don't even know what to say. She says, the last two or three years before we split up, they were hell for me. He was never the father he should have been. And it's just too bad that his punishment wasn't worse. Absolutely. Like, he kept this in. He didn't tell anyone. Granted, obviously, why would he? Because he's, he's not going to present himself to be tossed into jail for the rest of his life. But it sounds like either he did, his conscience started getting the better of him. Or maybe this is, I don't know, is this something where he continued to do it and he wanted to do more? They did take his profile and they uploaded it into three different um, databases, the Canadian database, the United States database, like CODIS, and then also over in the UK, just in case that his, his sample gets hits on other unsolved cases. But this is just insane. We've got two, two totally opposite ends of the spectrum. Either he was really, really good at what he did, because Heather tells us that he actually would just leave the house and he would just, you know, go off on, you know, weekend binges or whatever. So either he's continuing this this type of behavior or it was just a one and done type of thing and he doesn't do it ever again. And so that's why he never gets caught. And so he still stays under the radar. I just, we don't even, I, I don't know. But Heather tells us, well, he could have been caught a long time ago, a long time ago. But And she says, is, is it, was it really my husband? Could my husband have done that? This is what she says, quote, DNA don't lie. There's only one way it got there and that just don't lie, unquote. Exactly. I would say the same thing. So could they have found him? If we go back in time and we start thinking, well, if they didn't have Guy to zero in on 
and they just were, you know, doing the right thing and not mounting a case against a specific person. Instead of doing that, they actually like took all the evidence and they took all the interviews and they actually like made it work for them to zero and to then zero in and find the killer. I found an article on Toronto.com that mentions the fact that Heather was interviewed about this by the police department and because she because she had been friends with the Jessup family and she told investigators that he was at home taking care of the kids during that time and then and that was his alibi. So they decided they were never going to question him. So his name is in the file because he is essentially just the husband of the of the coworker, the husband of the employee, but he never got questioned himself. There's also this tip from 1984 that was in the case file that Sergeant Smith found. It was about um, the car that doesn't belong in Queensville. And then it turns out that this is the kind of car that, that Calvin had been driving at the time. And I do wonder, I'm not sure, but is this the tip about the girl that was in the car? Also, is it the tip saying, I, I saw a girl who was trying to get out of a car and this is the kind of car that it was? I'm not sure if the two are the same tip or not, but there we have it anyway. So what do we think happened to Christine? So mom and mom and Kenneth do an interview on TV shortly after the announcement um, with the local news channel. And they, this is what the theory is. And I think it's a very good theory. They tell us that the day that she went missing, remember, if we go back to our part one and we remember the details of the day she, Christine went missing, mom and Kenneth were scheduled to go visit dad who was in jail, who's serving some time. And Christine wanted to go. But mom decided that Christine was too young, and so she had to stay home. She had to go to school that day. She was going to hang out with friends after school, and Christine was throwing a fit. Well, before her and Kenneth took off that day, mom was on the phone with a few different people in the morning, and one of those people was actually Heather Hoover. So the theory is that Heather was hearing Christine, you know, essentially throwing a temper tantrum in the background. She's sympathizing with Christine, but understanding why mom isn't isn't taking her with them. Then after they get off the phone, Heather says to her husband, Calvin, oh, you know, Janet and Ken are going to see Bob today. Christine's Christine's upset. She was so upset because she wants to go see her dad, but mom won't let her go. And she's sympathizing with, with the little girl. In turn, Calvin says, oh, this is my chance. He hops in the car right after she gets out of school and he goes and he picks her up. Kenneth believes that that is that Calvin was at the house when she got home from getting the gum and he possibly just offered to take her to see her dad. Her bike had been left behind, but she actually hung up her jacket, and they think she just grabbed her recorder, maybe to play for her dad, when she saw him. And then she's never seen again. I like this theory, and I think it's a very strong theory. My only question is, if I'm putting all this information together, Heather had said that he was watching the kids, but we don't know. I've tried to find it. I couldn't find it. We don't know how old the older kids were in the Hoover family. So we don't know if they were, so Calvin must have just left the kids on their own. It's possible that the boys, that the older boys were old enough to watch all, to, to, for them to be home alone. Calvin went and did his thing. But then what did, what did he do throughout the rest of the day with her? If he's picking her up around four o'clock and the older woman over by the body site says that she heard screaming and crying upwards of like between somewhere between like 11 and midnight. Did he have her the whole time? Did he ever bring her home? Probably not, because then there would have been testimony. Or there would, you know, I'm sure that Heather or the boys would have said something. So when did Heather get home that night? How much time did she realize that he had either left, not only had left the boys home alone, 
Or maybe she wasn't. Maybe she thought that he was there the whole time and she maybe she didn't get home until later that night. I'm not sure. In any case, Calvin had multiple hours with Christine. And I, I can't imagine, it, like, mm. the second autopsy tells us there was a lot of rage, a lot of violence. This poor little girl, I, he's, he's such a son of a bitch. And I, that the kind of the kind of damage that he did to her and the fact that he was living day to day with his own wife that that knew her well and loved her and still participated in activities with the family and helped search for her and went to her funeral and and all this. He's a freaking monster. You put all that together and you say to yourself, it kind of sounds like he would have done this again. Only time will tell because they, they've got his they've got his profiles in three different countries worth of databases. And we'll see if anything ever comes up, especially because he's like I said, he was you know, he'd leave town for a couple days. Well, Kenneth says, Kenneth's got the best one next to his father, quote, rotten hell, you bastard. When mom is asked how she feels about it, she says, I feel the same, but I wouldn't use those words because she's a lady, I guess. <laughs> and she says that she gets her strength from her faith for all these years. But then Ken says, no, she was born with it. She was born with that strength and she gave it to me. Many times over the, over the years, she had to give me the strength to get through the rough spots about coping with Christine's murder. And then at the same time, sometimes I would have to help her. We had to help each other. It's just so sad. It's horrible. But I'm so glad that they were able to find out who did it so they could, so before they had passed and, and Bob, dad, before they had passed so they could have that kind of peace. It really pisses me off, though, that Calvin took his own life before we were able to get to him. So what do you think? Do you think they could have caught him? Do you think he did anything else? Do you think that there's other other victims out there? Hindsight's twenty twenty, so we can't really know for sure if he ever would have been caught if the police actually did their jobs and took the evidence first and then applied it to a suspect later instead of taking a suspect first and figuring out the evidence to make it fit. I'm not sure if they would have found him, but if they had vetted him, if they had interviewed him directly, then we might have gotten more information. Who knows if his attitude was this bad, maybe he was maybe his behavior at the time would have been just as bad. And maybe he would have, you know, brought up some suspicion just by the the way he behaved. Maybe he would have actually confessed. No, I don't know. Guy actually does uh, release a statement. We're so happy for him because even though, like I said, scientifically ruled out. There's a lot of people out there that still think it was him. And so now we finally have the DNA evidence showing that it was definitely not him. And all the circumstantial evidence leads to uh, points to Calvin. Guy says, quote, I am relieved for Christine's mother, Janet, and her family, and hope this will give them some peace of mind. They have been through a dreadful ordeal for 36 years since they lost Christine. I am grateful that the Toronto police stayed on the case and have now finally solved it. When DNA exonerated me in January of 95, I was sure that one day DNA would reveal the real killer, and now it has, unquote. And now for our closing tribute, we're going to give this to Mom Janet, thinking back about all of those cold cases that are starting to be solved, all of the cold cases that need answers, and all the families that are out there waiting, waiting on those phone calls. Janet tells us, just wait. And don't give up hope, because one day it will come. You just wait. We never thought it would come, but it did, unquote. And that is the case of the murder of Christine Jessup in 1984. Ooh, that was a big one. So holy cow, what a lot of information I was able to find, and I'm so glad I was able to bring it to you. 
Let me know what you think. You can find me on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at The Ties That Find. Go to my website, theties.find.com. Send me an e- a Gmail, ties.find.com. <laughs> send me <laughs> send me a Gmail at theties.find at gmail.com. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe. Also, I was thinking about possibly doing little mini episodes where I would highlight a DNA dough case that is still in research mode that hasn't yet either been funded or is in or is in the testing phase something that um, a case that hasn't been solved yet just let me know i'm wondering if anybody would like to hear that um i was thinking maybe just do like a five or ten minute um you know review of one of those of one of the does maybe just do that as an as a bonus once a week so i would do the the regular wednesday uh episode and then possibly maybe release that on like a I don't know, what, Friday or Saturday, maybe on the weekend. Um, let me know what you think about that. I'm not sure if there's interest out there, but I, I'm definitely thinking that it might be fun to do. In the meantime, hug your kids, be grateful for what you have, and I will see you next week. <laughs>